So we will not be in Exodus, uh, precisely anyway. Turn to Acts chapter 17, where we started with the scripture reading. We will be looking at some, not in full detail, but we will launch from this part of Acts 17 to hear Paul preach the gospel to the philosophers there in Athens. And where we're going here is that we're stemming out from our study in Exodus chapter 3. We heard the last couple of weeks about the God who is the I am who is I am. Well, what does this mean? And so we're going to consider this week and the next couple of weeks, branching out to some different scriptures, what this means. Namely here that he's the independent creator. That means he needs nothing. Lord willing, next week we'll consider that he is omnipresent. That means he's everywhere present and he's all powerful. And then finally in three weeks... We'll consider that he is the eternal God, the I am, who is always present. But before we get to any of that, let me start with this uh, news article I came across. Dateline is Sandy Springs, Georgia. According to sources, famed college football coach Brian Kelly stubbornly refused to listen to a local man, Mark Johnson, when he repeatedly yelled, call a timeout at his TV. The article continues, My heart was just breaking for him, his loving and devoted wife Kirsten explained to reporters. Mark literally jumped out of his chair screaming, and yet the coach didn't make that tea thing with his hands. The players just did another one of those prayer circles before they snapped the ball, and well, things really escalated in our living room then. Local nine-year-old and resident football expert Tim Johnson attempted to explain the intricacies to his mother. Quote, calling a timeout is good sometimes, but not always. And frankly, dad had it wrong, said Tim. I was yelling at Coach Kelly to let the clock run. I guess the coach listened to me. At press time, Coach Kelly admitted that he had doggedly ignored Mr. Johnson's yells leading to their tragic 24-23 loss. The coach admittedly or immediately announced he was foregoing the remainder of his 10-year, $70 million contract and turning the program over to Mr. Johnson, end quote. I suppose I failed to mention that I found this article on Babylon B, a conservative or Christian maybe satire site. I opened with it for two reasons. First of all, because I am that guy. <laughs> Yelling at the TV rebuking coaches, screaming at players, telling them what to do, where to be, telling them who to throw to and when, slamming refs for their missed calls. Little need to say, watching a Kansas City Chiefs game in my house is a raucous event. But second, I bring it up because it's interesting. All of that yelling, of course, all of that barking orders at the TV, it does no good. And admittedly, it's quite ridiculous. For that entire football game, coaches, players, refs, and all, operates, and this is the key word, independently of me. That is, the game moves along, play after play, no matter how much I holler, yell, or clap. It does nothing. The game doesn't need me to go on. They don't wait for me to start sometimes. Imagine that. It often starts without me, and nothing I can say or do will ever alter the outcome. Here's the connection to our study this morning. To consider the God who is the great I Am, the independent creator. And that's the operative term, independent. In a way, like the fan to the game, God operates and even just exists quite 
independently of whatever we might yell, scream, say, do, or think towards Him. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need our great ideas. He doesn't need our insightful opinions, our industrious efforts, our revolutionary plans. No, He's gotten along quite fine without us, independent of us, and that hasn't changed in the least and never will. The theme of our series of texts this morning is this, the Lord God is that independent creator of all things, which means all things come from Him and all things depend on Him, though He needs none of it. So as we consider this text and this theme and over the next couple of weeks, we're going to encounter the great I am. What I want us to take from this is that you would have a right view of yourself and a right view of God, which means naturally we need to lower our view of ourself and raise our view of God. We've seen that, right, as we've talked about the midwives in Exodus. We've talked about even Moses. So often in our life, people become really big in our minds or we become really big. They are the thing that dominates our thinking. And when that happens, then consequently, God inherently becomes very small in our mind, though He hasn't changed in the least. So this text is about us lowering our view of ourselves so we can have the right view of God, to fear Him, to honor Him, to know and with the truth that He dominates all. And it starts here with this thought of the independent God, that God doesn't ever need you but you always need Him. Let this unfold as we consider these things. First, I just want to lay out for you the doctrine or, or the teaching that we're talking about, the independent Creator God. A couple of verses we're going to reference are Exodus 3.14 and then John 5.26. That is, to begin with, if we're going to begin to think about this God, the I Am, who is I Am, we have to go back to the beginning. And even if it were possible, we need to go before the beginning. That is, as we were in Exodus and God reintroduced himself to Moses at the burning bush, you recall Moses then poses the question, well, God, what's your name? And we considered it. The issue was not that Moses did not know God's name. He knew it was Yahweh. People had known God's name to be Yahweh ever since Adam's son, Seth, from the very beginning. We see that at the end of Genesis chapter 4. Let alone Abraham and the patriarchs. They knew the only God, that His name is Yahweh, or written as the Lord in all caps in your Bibles. So the issue was not, what is His name? It's Yahweh. But who is Yahweh? What does His name mean? What's the significance of this name? And when asked, the Lord answered to say this. We saw this in Exodus 3. Who am I? I am who I am. The word I am in the Hebrew comes from the word to exist, to be. So God is the one who is. Tell them, I am sent you. The one who is, he always was, he always is, and always will be. And at that point, if we try and meditate on this, our finite little noggins just blow up. Why? Because our own experience in our very limited finitude 
and let alone how we walk through life, cannot handle this. Everything in our world, we've talked about this, happens by cause and effect. Everything from the very mundane in your life, you woke up this morning and your neck was killing you, and what was, what was the cause of this? Well, it was the effect I slept on it weird. That's why my neck's killing me. Or you're driving around. What happened to that crop of trees? Something must have made those disappear. What were they? Oh, yeah, they're building a whole other set of condos around here. Or it can be, too, the most significant questions of life, going back to, where did I come from? Why is anything here? How did we get here? Even the most secular, God-denying scientists, they postulate a beginning of some kind, this big bang that started somewhere to set things in motion. But of course, who caused that? Who lit the firecracker? But with God, the unmoved mover that set it all in motion, you can never get behind Him. To use the Back to the Future reference, you get in that DeLorean and you can never go pre-God. He always is. He's always present. He never was not. He is life. He doesn't merely make life. He is life in and of Himself. He needed no mother. He needed no developmental period. He needed no womb. He needed no big bang to get started. He needed no primordial ooze to come out of. He just is and always was. All life comes from Him then. He is the one that sets it all in motion. And that means all and everything depends on Him. Jesus says it like this. If you're going to put a single proof text to this, this is John chapter 5, verse 26. Jesus says, For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. He has existence and life just because that is who He is. He needs nobody. He depends on no one or thing for life, for explanation, for existence, for continuance, for sustenance. And so if he needs no one, because he has life in himself, then he depends on nothing. And then you see he is entirely independent of us, of anything in creation. And so it is for us to object or to question or to cry foul to the holy, independent God Yeah, we're like that rabid, crazy fan yelling at his TV screen. No one there at the game, not the coaches, not the players, not the other fans. No one hears him. No one listens. The game moves on quite independent of him. So here's the thing. Though Yahweh is entirely independent of us, we are wholly dependent upon him. He's the source of our life. And so we must reckon with Him, the independent Creator God, Yahweh. And that shows in two ways, at least, that we're going to look at two texts, Acts and then the, in Isaiah. But first, what's the implication of this in the first place? This means you cannot define God. 
He exists independent of you. He defines you. He made you. And where Paul ends in this sermon, he judges you, not the other way around. We need to repent of all of our false views about God, about what we think about Him. And we need to submit our thoughts to who God really is. And in a way, this is the central word that Paul gives to the Athenians. We are in no place to judge God, to define Him. We don't get to imagine and suggest what He's like. And actually, in large part, He will judge us based on what we thought Him to be. And so, again, to show this, we look at Acts 17. This is Paul's famous sermon or address on Mars Hill. This was during his second missionary journey. He makes just a stop off in Athens, and he had not intended to spend much time there, but he's so overcome by all of the idolatry and polytheism he sees everywhere, he has to say something, so he starts preaching the gospel. Leave it to Paul. He's here in Athens. It's the philosophical capital of the world. And a few philosophers that hear him preaching invite Paul to come speak at Mars Hill or to the Areopagus. This is probably the great counselor of the greatest thinkers and philosophers and think professors and experts and PhDs of his day. They're all going to hear his message and critique it or analyze it. So here, this is the ultimate invitation, isn't it? And what's Paul going to say? He's going to preach the gospel, and where is he supposed to begin? This is challenging in that context in particular. It's one that our own context is sharing more and more. But the challenge of us getting to speak about God becomes harder and harder because to the common person we speak with, we don't share many common convictions or ideas or thoughts or worldview. For them, it was the Greek philosophers and polytheists of the day. What did they think of when they thought of God? And so where can Paul start? But he has to go scrap all of that. We've got to go back right to the beginning. And so he goes right back to really those opening truths of the Bible. God is one and He is the Creator. Verse 24 then, finally, of Acts 17. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. In a way, what Paul's saying is, God made the world, so He is separate from it. He's not part of it. He doesn't live here. He doesn't have an address. Even when He did of sorts, think of the temple of Israel. Remember, when Solomon built the temple, here's what he prayed and asked to God. He said this, he confessed, this is 1 Kings chapter 8, 27, as the temple's finally built. But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. And Solomon had it precisely right. God cannot be confined to a box. You cannot put him in a house, in an ark. And why? Because this God, the true God, he's different than anything that we have known. He is entirely independent, and in that way then, infinite. He needs nothing. He depends on no one. Hence, this is where Paul turns next, verse 25, nor is God served by human hands as though he needed anything. He doesn't need a mailbox so you can get him letters. 
He's not served by human hands as though he needed anything. Why? Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Note the logical connection Paul makes here there at the end of the verse. Because God made everything, he gives life and everything to everything. He can't be served by you. Certainly as though he needed anything. He needs nothing. He made it all. And he made it out of nothing. What can you give him? What could he possibly need from you? Trying to give something to the independent, almighty creator God is like the worst attempt at trying to find a Christmas gift for your parents. When you're, first of all, you're a young, young kid and you love your dear parents and so you want to give them a Christmas present. And then you realize in your four-year-old, five-year-old mind, you have no money. That's a problem. And you can't drive. You can't get to the store. There's no way you could possibly buy anything. So it seems a bit pointless, but you do it anyway. Hey, Mom, could you give me $20, drive me to Hobby Lobby, and let me use your money to buy something for you for Christmas? Oh, and by the way, would you wrap it for me? Thanks, Mom. Merry Christmas. And then even into adulthood, maybe when you've acquired some financial independence on your own. Many times our parents in a, might be in a better financial space than we are. And what are you supposed to buy them? They seem to have got everything else they wanted. Well, amp that up many, many times over to the Creator God. What can you possibly give Him? God puts it like this to Asaph in Psalm 50. He says this. Again, think of the context of the temple and all the sacrifices God says, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. Why? For every beast of the forest is already mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field. It's already mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. Why? For the world and its fullness are mine. He made it all. He owns it all. What can you possibly give him that isn't already his? Or Paul puts it like this, it's the great almost song at the end of Romans 11 as he reflects on the great saving plan of God. It's as if Paul sings it and he says, this is Romans 11, 35 and 36, or who has given a gift to God that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen, Paul writes. It's just praise to him. It all comes from him. This is what it means to be the creator, the maker of all. All things are yours. You made all things. Everything, everyone depends upon you. You need none. I trust already before this kind of God, our self-importance should rightly try and shrink back down to size. God doesn't need you. And so you see, your relationship to the Creator is entirely one-sided. There is no codependence or mutual dependence between you and God. God's not your little buddy next to you, and you guys are tackling the world together. Not at all. He is no peer. And nor is He just a bigger version of you, but better at stuff. He is the separate, independent God. He made you. 
He gives you life. He defines you. And so that means you don't get to define him. And yet, going back to Acts 17 here, as Paul notes, we try. We try and we try to define God by making gods of our own. Because in the first place, he acknowledges you were actually made to know God and to relate to Him. This is your purpose in life. Look at Acts 17, verse 26 now. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God. So why did He make us to seek Him and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him? But not many would find Him. Even though, Paul notes, he's actually not far from each one of us. And this is what the Bible teaches. This is just biblical truth that Paul's laying out for the the pagan world. God made all things, and He is one God. And He made you in His image to know Him and to govern the world He has made. And even in all of their paganism, and even the atheists next door, they know God's there. They can sense something about it. It was even, there was still that remaining light, so to speak, that was in the the Greek philosophers and poets. Look at what Paul says in verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. They acknowledge this, for we are indeed his offspring. So here's the trouble. All of us, because of creation, Paul talks about in Romans, we know there's a God out there. We know he exists. But in our corrupted hearts, we don't want to know the real God. We want to make a God of our own. We want to make a God in our image, after our likeness, about how we think about things. We want a God that we can control, not an independent God that calls the shots. We want a dependent God that we work with that depends on us. So what happens? Paul adds then, verse 29, Being then God's offspring, think about this, he's saying, if you really are the product of God, you ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. It's the insidious notion that at first sounds so humble because it sounds so indeterminate. It sounds so mushy. It sounds so not solid and strong and true. But we say things like, you know, I imagine God to be like. It doesn't seem too threatening. It's just your own God, your own truth, so to speak. I imagine God to be like. I, I like to think of God as like. And then you fill in the blank. What have you heard before? I imagine a God so loving And he wouldn't dare tell me to not love this person or marry this person or do this thing. I imagine a God so accepting that he'd never tell me no to that when he knows I need it to be happy. I imagine a God so good, he he would never let anything bad happen to me. I think I've honestly heard this. I think of God, he's like a doting grandparent in heaven, just giving out treats to his children. All of these heinous forms of idolatry. We don't get to define or imagine what God is like. He is. And you have to move to Him. 
not the other way around. He defines us. And as Paul mentions next, he will judge us. Verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. In a way, you might say God once overlooked our ignorant, sinful thoughts about him, pretending him to be like this or that when we didn't know what he was like or we really were running from him to make a God of our own construction. But that time for ignorance is over. Everything's changed now. Why? In Paul's context, he's saying God's now broken into history. He's broken into this world as Jesus the Christ, and he died, and he rose, and he's coming back, and he's coming back to judge the whole idolatrous world. And you will be condemned unless you repent. Repent in turning from your rebellious, selfish ways, going after your own things, trying to be your own God, the own captain of your own life, but in the context here too. Bending and turning your thoughts about God to who He actually is, the only true God. That you would submit your thoughts to God who He says He is, not you, who you imagine or hope He would be. And what does this look like? Well, here's a couple things first. That means you need to stop trying to imagine what God is like or what He thinks about stuff while neglecting His holy word. And all of it, not just the red letters. Scripture is the Word of God. It is the reliable source, the only one really about who God is and what He thinks. You want to know what God thinks about something? You go to the book. And this is hard for us though, admittedly, because two things often often happen. First, in the first place, we assume, I do, I'm a pretty good guy, and God likes me, and I probably think like God does. And so then I read God's Word, and I encounter something, oh, I don't like the sound of that. Disagreeable to us. It's disagreeable maybe to our culture. And so what happens then? We try and explain it away. Instead of bending to the Word, we bend the Word to us and how we think. From the past generation in evangelical churches, that revolved around matters about, namely, roles of women in the church and in the family, actually. What do you mean women can't be pastors? What do you mean men need to be the leader in their homes? And so texts like 1 Timothy 2, chapter 12, where Paul so clearly states, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, by the way, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. Well, that truth is inconvenient, isn't it? It must be explained away. In other words, we try and bend God and His thoughts to our own or really just make a God of our own creation. That was the last generation. This present one seems to be matters that all revolve around marriage, sexuality, morality, and even just gender now. And despite how clear God's Word is on these things, some try and just explain it all away, God's design for males and females. But here's the thing, you can pretend all you want, 
And you can have with you the culture's affirmation and even the the great assurance you're on the right side of history. It's all going to pass away like a vapor when God ends history and you stand before Him. So what do you do? You need to repent. Align and conform your life, your view of Him as revealed, not as you assume, but as He says in His Word. Also, this means you can't replace God. You can see the theme as we turn now to Isaiah chapter 45. The theme of idolatry surfaces again. We try and create replacement gods. And you can't replace Him. And you dare not do so, as Isaiah will bring up, because He alone saves you. There's no other Savior. So looking here in Isaiah 45, I know we're swiping to the Old Testament, so you need to go there if you're not there already. So in your Bible, you know, go to the midway point, you flip it open, you're in Psalms, go write a couple books, you'll find Isaiah pretty shortly, it's a long book. Go to chapter 45. And let's look at this great, really it's like an apologetic. If Paul was giving a defense to the Christian faith, to the Athenian world of the first century... That's what Isaiah is doing here, but now 700 years before Jesus. And here, he seems to be reminding his own people what God is like and why they should still trust Him. So, but what was going on about this time period that brought that in question? See, it was going to be really tough for God's people to continue trusting God because circumstances were about to go really bad. Bad like how? Bad like invaded, conquered, and taken over bad. First it was the Assyrians, and then the Babylonians come along to finish the job. And these invaders not only took their lands, but they drove Israel out of it, the key word we see throughout the Bible, they exiled them off of their own places and lands to the place of Babylon. Remember, that's where we pick up with Daniel and where he is. So what's the crisis? Well, it's on two fronts. First, God had promised them this land forever as an eternal possession. And so then, when you're being taken over and taken captive, you've got to be asking, God, what about those promises? We were kind of banking on those. Are you not strong enough to see them through? Or worse, were you lying to us? You can't keep your word on this? But second, and the related problem, it would seem like then that the Babylonian gods are stronger. Another thing to note, they need to keep in mind as we're studying this ancient Near Eastern context, when nations went to war and there was an invasion going on, for example, they didn't think the victor was going to be determined by who had the most chariots and who had the most swords and catapults or something like this. No, between the warring nations, the one that was going to win was the one who had the stronger God. So when your whole nation is invaded, taken over, taken captive, and exported, be really tempting to think, oh, those Babylonian gods, they are strong, much stronger than Yahweh. And it's into that mess Isaiah then speaks up, or God speaks up through him to say, no, it's not what you think. I haven't been overpowered. I'm still in control here. He explains in this text, Really, this is all about your sin and you're being disciplined to be being brought back to me. But understand, I will keep my word, comfort my people is where it begins. 
I will bring you back home because I am God and there is no other. And what an encouragement that is to us because we're going to walk through life, and we do, and it's not easy, and things go awry, and things go horrible, and you might look at God's promises and be like, God, what is going on here? Well, our finitude, our smallness, our perspective is inherently very small. And God's coming in to say, trust me, I am God and there is no other. And so to prove this point, we can't go through this whole text as great as it is. But we'll start in verse 18. And this is really where Isaiah begins. There is only one creator and he is Yahweh. For thus says, you notice all caps there, the Lord, or that stands for God's name. For thus says Yahweh, who created the heavens. He is God who formed the earth and made it. He established it, and He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am Yahweh. There is no other. So before you start imagining, Israel, that the gods of Babylon are better, don't forget who you're rejecting now. You're rejecting the only God, the Creator. And there is no God besides Him. Furthermore, when you're turning your back on the Lord and you're giving yourself over to these Babylonian gods, think about who they are. For what you discover, they truly are powerless. Look at verse 20, just skipping ahead here. Isaiah 45, 20. Assemble yourselves, God says, and come, draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Here's the picture. God's going to have a court and they're going to have a trial. And the trial is going to determine who's the real God. And so he's inviting all of the idolaters, all the pagans, bring me all of your gods. This is like God's show and tell. Get together, present your case. Tell me how great your gods are. And notice, just right away, they have to carry their gods. Their gods can't bring themselves to court because they can't move because they're dead. Furthermore, their gods never say anything. They're silent. Even as the pagan begs their God to save them, the God doesn't care, seemingly. He never does anything. Why? Because as he says here, the wooden idols, they're dead trees. They're not alive. They don't have life. They can never give it. And that calls to mind really the foolishness of idolatry that we find in Isaiah chapter 44. A glorious passage. It starts there in verse 9 of Isaiah 44. We can't go into detail about it, but let me sum it up for you. In our blindness, here's what we can do in our folly of idolatry. We can go to a tree and we can cut it down. A tree made by God, by the way. We'll cut down the tree, and then we'll cut it in half. And we'll take half of it, and we'll have firewood. And we'll use that to cook up a nice, yummy meal. And then we'll take the other half. What should I do with that? Mm, let's make a god. Let's carve it up, and then I will bow down to it. Look at verse 17 and 18 of Isaiah 44. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and he falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me, for you are my god. They know not, nor do they discern, for God has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so they cannot understand. As we give ourselves over to other things, our hearts start to get hardened to the truth. 
and we no longer see the real God for who he is. In other words, sin makes us stupid. We do and say stupid things, blinding ourselves to the true God, the one we actually need, not just the makeup God we wanted there to be. And while we are far too smart and sophisticated to make little statues and worship them, but what are we praying to, so to speak, that would save us? What do we look for security and what would deliver us? Maybe it's keeping up and improving our homes, either for a status or some security that it will last. We pour our lives into our jobs because then I will know I've done something that I matter. We dive into hobbies, video games, fishing, movies, workouts, whatever. Again, of themselves, those things might be fine, but they tend to dominate our life. They are that thing we always turn to when our mind gets free. We get an independent, seemingly moment. And what do we think of? Our little idol that we hope will satisfy us and rescue us. But here's the thing. No idol, no accomplishment you can have can ever save or rescue your very soul. And so then next we turn to Isaiah's call, or really the Lord's call, to these idolatrous nations. Verse 21 of chapter 45. He brought them all forward. Declare, present your case. Let them take counsel together. All of you idols and idolaters, you guys can all team up. You can come up with the best plan that you can. Show me how great your gods are. Here's God's defense. Who told you this long ago? Who declared it from of old? Was it not I, Yahweh, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and Savior. There is none besides me. What's he getting at here? Again, in the larger context of these opening chapters of Isaiah 40 in the 40s here, Yahweh is comparing himself to idols. And he says, let's have a test. Here, we'll figure out who the true God is and what will be the test. Who is the God that can tell the future? If you can tell me the future, that means you're God because you made everything, you're in control of everything. Give me the script that says how everything's going to turn out. Oh, you didn't have one? Let me give you one, Yahweh says. I'm going to give you a name, Cyrus. Flip there, just the beginning of chapter 45, and you'll notice just right in 45 verse 1, thus says the Lord to his anointed to Cyrus. What's going on? God's telling you the very name, the one's going to deliver his people and return them back to the promised land. In 700 BC, when Isaiah wrote this down, this guy Cyrus, he wouldn't even be born for over 100 years. But it was in 539 B.C., you can go read about it in Ezra chapter 1. He is the very one that makes, he becomes king of Persia, he makes this declaration, and God's people start trickling back to the promised land. Well, that was sure lucky of God to know that. Luck is not involved, is it? He's bringing out all of his history by every idea and plan that he's had. And none of it's interrupted. He made it all. It all depends on him. Who is God here? Who is the one in control? It's the one who can declare the end from the beginning. The great I am. Yahweh. He alone is God. 
And that means if he alone is God, then there is hope nowhere else but right at him. And thankfully, look what he says in verse 22. After he's disproved or proved that all of the idols are totally false, what could God do? He could just squash them all in the moment. But here's what he does, verse 22. Turn to me. So this is Isaiah 45, verse 22. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. Why? For I am God. There is no other. What a God of mercy. He calls to all the ends of the earth, all the idolaters, all of those false thinkers about him, even the ones right within Israel and the farthest ones to the end of the earth. He calls them to all who have wandered away from God, who have worshipped other gods, who made God in their own image, who pray to these things that will never save them, never satisfy them, never deliver them. That's what your idols do. They take life from you. They never give it because they have none. But then the one who is life says, turn to me and find rescue and rest for your souls. I have life. So I can rescue you. I can save you. But you have to turn to me. For as he says, I am God and there is no other. He alone can save, can rescue, can save your very and forgive your soul. Because understand, and it's where the implication is as he turns next, there comes a day, there comes a day when it's too late to repent, to turn to him as Savior. The only option left is your condemning judge. In other words, back here in Isaiah 45, one way or another Every knee will bow to Yahweh. Look at verse 21. Or excuse me, verse 23. Isaiah 45, 23. By myself I have sworn. From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me, God says. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall swear allegiance. You cannot replace God with the God of your own making in the first place. You cannot replace God with anyone else because there is no other Savior. You look for salvation, rescue, deliverance, anywhere else, it's going to come up empty. No doctor can ultimately save you in the end. They can't freeze your body and prolong your life. There will be no ultimate cure for everything. There's no new technological advancement awaiting. There's no new green initiative to deliver this planet. There's no amount of ammo that you can hoard to fight off all of your enemies, namely death. No government, no politician can save you, can ever deliver you from the judgment you deserve, from death. It's coming for us all. And we will be accountable before this God and all of our evils done against Him. And nor can you save yourself. Can you be good enough to make up for all of the wrongs you've done? It doesn't work that way. You cannot save yourself. But here's the thing. Yahweh can. Christ can. And He alone can and will. And He invites all the ends of the earth to come and be reconciled to God. But to Him as He is, as the only Creator, not how you want Him to be, but how He actually is. The saving God. 
that is dependent on no one, who needs the help of no one to bear his strong arm and save your soul so willfully, so willingly, so securely, so assuredly that no one can stop in that kind of salvation. That's why we can say, if God, if that God is for us, who can be against us, Paul writes. We dare not replace this God, for then we're rejecting any hope of salvation. But related to that, second, any attempts to replace this God, they are just a daydream. It's a fantasy, an illusion that we're trying to live in. That one day you're going to wake up and reality, the God who is real, will be before you. And then you will bow to him. You can't escape him. But he offers you himself now as a savior. Let's look at one more text. Turn over now to the New Testament. We're going to go to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. For if the mercy of this God is not enough, if his sheer power to make all things and hold them together has not yet driven you to your knees to worship Him, to stand in awe of Him, to love Him, to give your life to Him. If I can say it like this, let's try one more thing. Consider Jesus Christ. And we turn to this text because the Apostle Paul, he connects what we just read about in Isaiah right to Jesus. See if this does not sound familiar. Look at it, Philippians 2, verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Why? So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is astounding. Think about this. What was that Isaiah text all about? You have your gods. There's all of these gods out there. But who is the one true God? It's the one to whom every knee will bow and confess. And Paul has the clarity, but to the Jewish mind, the audacity to tell you. And that God is Jesus Christ. He is Yahweh. He alone is God. To Him, every knee will bow and confess that He alone is Lord. He is the only Savior. Now, as astounding as that is, in a way, that's all ground we've covered before except is so clearly connected to our Savior, Jesus Christ. But look at one more thing in this text. Why is Jesus so highly exalted here, as Paul describes it? Why is Jesus so worthy of all praise and position and adoration? Look at the again at the beginning of verse 9. What's the first word? Therefore. So you go back earlier in the text and you figure out why Jesus is so excellent and so worthy of praise. Why this God is to be so exalted. Well, let's read it. Look at verse 6. Speaking of the I am, Jesus Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself 
by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This God, the great independent I am, the creator becomes a servant. The one who never needed anything took on human flesh to need, at least as a man, to hunger as a man, to thirst as a man, to obey as a son, to serve like a man, so then he could die like a man, and that for you, to take your sins, if you would trust him. The I am came down to be the servant we so desperately needed, but we would say we didn't want him. The I am came to truly, not to be served, right? but to serve, to give his life as a ransom on that cross for many, many enemies. So who is like this God? Who is glorious like him? Who is merciful like him? But who, get this, is humble like him? There is none. There's none more worthy of praise, all obedience and honor and worship, even of all creation, than this God, the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. So what about us? Will we be servants? Can we, do we, serve others just for their sake? Just for Christ's sake? Because we don't need anything in return from them. Oh God, be merciful to us. Us slaves who act like masters. When you, the great I am, who needed nothing, in a way gains nothing, and yet you served us still. You gave us your life. May our lives then be a dedicated act of worship to you, the great creator, the I am, the risen Jesus. I think there's no better way to end it than where we saw Paul exult in our great salvation in Romans 11 when he said, Oh, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And then Paul says, Therefore, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Let's pray together.